Heert Wilders is celebrating his win after the Dutch parliamentary elections, and the Dutch woke up to a new political reality on the morning of the 23rd of November. Hello and welcome to your Actives Beyond the Byland podcast. I am Evikiori, and in this episode we are focusing on the result of the Dutch elections and the rise of the far right in the European Union. Geert Wilders, the anti-Islam populist, secured a significant victory in Dutch elections, signaling a notable shift to the far right in a country once celebrated for its tolerance. Geert Wilders is now positioned to lead talks for the next governing coalition, potentially becoming the first far right prime minister of the Netherlands, as his party for freedom secured 37 seats in the 150-seat lower house of parliament, more than double his previous tally of 17 in the last elections. This outcome is sending shockwaves through Europe, where far-right ideologies are gaining momentum, since this isn't the only victory for the far-right in the EU. So what have been the reactions so far, and what does this result mean for the Netherlands? The first uh, reaction was shock, because even though we've sadly become used to this kind of um, rather bad news, um, Geert Wilders did much better than actually the polls had um, had anticipated. So the last Ipsos poll that came out on the 21st put him on 27 uh, seats, whereas in fact he's come out um, at least so far with 37 seats. Catherine Fieschi is a comparative political analyst with a focus on populism, authoritarianism and challenges to democracy and representation. And she's currently a fellow at the Robert Schuman Center, an interdisciplinary research center at the heart of the European University Institute. So I think that the, the first thing that I note was um, was shock. Um, the, the second reaction, I think, was, you know, as as is often the case, and obviously particularly right now, um, that, that this is a, a really unfortunate development because we need a particularly um, united Europe at the moment to face a, a number of huge challenges. Um, and this you know, signals probably more disunity, and it also sends a pretty dire signal for the potential results of the European um, parliamentary elections, which are which are going to be held in in June of of 2024. So all in all, you know, it's a kind of a big amalgam of shock, disappointment, and a little bit of dread about what this means for the future. So what can they expect? What implications does this outcome hold for the country? He hasn't formed a government yet. <laughs> Um, uh, so I think, you know, uh, in, in a sense, I'd like to, to cling to that, to that last hope. Um, we know that the left alliance, the Timmermans alliance will not cooperate with him. But on the other hand, we know that, um, the other, you know, two major parties, uh, you know, the liberals and the right have, have made noises that, you know, they haven't excluded really the possibility of, of working with Wilders. So I think that, you know, the next 
few um, days and weeks are going to be crucial. One of the things it means for the country is given the difficulty, A, that they're going to face in forming a coalition and B, in keeping it together, um, the Netherlands is looking at, you know, more instability and probably more weak government and therefore even more exasperated voters. Is the emergence of far-right governments in Europe and the EU becoming a discreditable trend? Yes, it is becoming a trend. And it's been, you know, it's been a trend for a long time. This is not the first time that Gerd Wilders does well. Um, you know, it's quite clear that really, if you look at the party that has most support uh, in um, in France right now, it is Marine Le Pen's party. Um, if you take the Polish elections over which we, we breathed a sigh of relief, the fact is that PIS is still um, the party with the most support. Um, of course, you know, we have to think of, of Orban. Um, you know, there are very few good news stories. Um, Spain is one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I really want to mention the good news stories when I can. Um, but the fact is that, yes, we're, we are witnessing a trend. So what factors contribute to the growing trend of Europeans turning to and voting for the far right? It's a complicated and multifaceted question. I would say that, you know, in the case of the Netherlands, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that this was also a vote, both of, I would call it fatigue and also exasperation. There is that that was playing out in the Netherlands. This was uh, the fourth uh, Rutte government. It's had, he'd been in power for a long time. The last coalition took 12 months to negotiate and only managed to hold for 18 months. Um, and the coalition fell because they failed to find an agreement um, and, and, you know, quite tellingly on asylum uh, policy. So in a sense, you know, you could argue that this kind of behavior is precisely the kind of irritation, exasperation, um, you know, and exhaustion that populist parties do very well on because the mainstream look incompetent. They look like they're really busy only looking out for themselves rather than for the country. So, you know, I would say that there's something particular to this election in the Netherlands. But the other thing that I think we need to keep in mind, of course, is the weaponization of immigration, which obviously is used by people like Wilders. But I would say, I think, you know, Two things are important to keep in mind with respect to this election because they they give us, I think, broader clues, uh, you know, for for what else is going on. The first is that um, one of the things that that uh, Rutte did was essentially move right uh, on immigration and asylum issues. One of the reasons that his coalition split up was wanted to toughen. Uh, the asylum uh, policy. And, you know, time and again, parties of the center or center right play this game. And what they end up doing is they do the work for the populist right or even the far right. And at election time, they don't collect on it, but the populists and the far right often do. So, you know, I think there's a cautionary tale here. That kind of tactic only very, very seldom works for mainstream parties. It worked in Sweden a, f- a few a few years ago. But I think, you know, this is, um, you know, this is a, really an important thing. The other part that I think explains a little bit why people are voting for these parties 
is that if we look at how Wilders played his campaign, what we note is that you know, he was certainly, you know, no friend of Islam throughout it, but actually he toned down his rhetoric in comparison to the way that he'd previously spoken over the past 15 years. It was a lot less, you know, what I would call Islam bashing than than there was in the past. What he did was adopt what I would call the Marine Le Pen playbook, right? He went on so Jews. He courted working class voters. He started talking about health. He's talking about old age, he started talking about housing. Um, and I think that, you know, we need to understand the fact that these parties, uh, you know, because they've been on our radar for a while, we, we tend to sort of interpret them all, always in the same way. But actually, they have changed pretty fundamentally. I mean, they're no, you know, they're certainly no friend of migrants or asylum seekers or, or, or minorities. But what they've done is that they have started to play a much more clever game, capitalizing on disaffected um working class voters who usually would have voted for the left, uh, but now tend to feel that they've been let down or abandoned and are voting for them. And Wilders played exactly this uh, for this campaign. And would you say that the far-right parties are now adding and adopting a broader scope of topics that interest the public and they include them in their pro-electoral campaigns as well? Yes, and I think that you know it's not so much that they're that they're so much more interested in these topics, but they are actually adopting an electoral strategy based on the data that they have, and they know that um, that voters are going to be much re- much more receptive in a time of anxiety and change and inflation and rising inequality. That they're going to be incredibly receptive. Um, you know, to a a more social agenda and potentially a little less receptive to a diehard Eurosceptic agenda. And speaking of Euroscepticism, in the previous episode of our podcast about what to expect from these Dutch elections, Professor of Politics at the University of Amsterdam, Sarah de Lang, mentioned that the Netherlands is shifting towards a more Eurosceptic trajectory. Many of the right-wing-leaning parties have a more Eurosceptic position um, than the previous government. And many of the measures that they would like to take against the influx of immigrants is not really possible within the existing EU uh, legislative frameworks. Catherine, what is your take on this? What would you add and what are the reasons leading to more Euroscepticism? These parties remain very much Eurosceptic, but they have learned that their voters don't necessarily want them to pull out of Europe. What their voters want and what these parties pursue is a different kind of Europe from the inside, right? And to to change it from the inside. For example, nobody is really talking about pulling out of the euro anymore. Marine Le Pen tried that in 2017 and it was a catastrophe, right? And so they've all learned, um, you know, from her playbook and have become um, critical of Europe but they want to stay in and not pull out. Um, it's a form of Euroscepticism because they contest the legitimacy of these institutions. They don't want the European institutions to meddle inside national and domestic politics. So yes, I mean, you know, this is a Eurosceptic trend. I think we need to, to again, to take two things into account. One is that the Netherlands um, 
you know, in some ways, even under Rutte, had a, a particular view of how Europe should should work. And in many ways, it was already at odds with, you know, some of what the commission was doing and certainly at odds with, you know, some of the more federalist-minded, I guess, members, right? You know, the, the, the Netherlands were already, you know, labeled as part of the frugal group, perhaps even leading the frugal group, had a um, in a sense, quite a critical stance, uh, you know, against the kind of regulate protectionist regulation and view of industrial policy that that the that Europe was uh, was putting forward. So, in any case, I mean, you know, we're starting from a place where I think you know there's a very liberal mercantilist and 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 in a sense, kind of a more restricted view of what Europe should be involved in. What we're you know what we're looking at with Wilders is is this you know much more um much more in spades with an emphasis on the kind of fortress europe mentality of course you know in terms of of borders a real emphasis on 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 borders you know in contrast to a more uh, a more liberal view so i think that you know it, it's important to to see this as a general trend, but also to see some of you know the particularities uh, um, of uh, of the Netherlands when we talk about relationship to Europe and and you know and Euroscepticism. Right. So, how do you expect this result to impact and influence the country's international relations with others, and specifically with the EU? In this very uh, particular moment, you know, um, and given the the pressures created by the the Russian war against Ukraine, um, this is going to have. Uh, a, a negative impact, particularly on that. Um, we're talking about a party, uh, Wilders party, um, that you know questions sending more arms to Ukraine. That is uh, not at all on board with uh, with the accession process. So, in terms of Europe and also Europe's capacity to act together and to act externally and to weigh in as a constructive foreign policy actor if Wilders manages to form a government. This is bad news in terms of slowing Europe down even more on that. Um, I think that you know, it also will, will create the kind of, in a sense, non-cooperative uh, attitude uh, across the board, particularly on, on trade uh, and 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 commerce, although it's not quite clear how Wilders would would conduct himself on uh, really on on industrial policy, um, and then of course there's the the immigration issue, right? You know where you know here we're faced with a Europe where we have you know Meloni in one place, Orban uh, in another, um, and then you know potentially now Wilders uh, in the Netherlands. This um, this spells out an even further hardening the European uh, the European capacity to handle migration, and I think that that too is hugely problematic given the fact that it is an, an incredibly important and urgent topic to to manage in the current moment, and it's and it's not going to get any less urgent in the next few years. So I think that you know these are some of the key issues on which citizens want Europe to act. On climate, which we know he is not going to, uh, he's not going to support, um, you know, the kind of environmental policies that uh, that the Commission and that Europe has been, you know, pretty good at at, at pushing on migration. Um, you know, there's going to be lack of cooperation um, as well. So um, this puts a spanner 
you know, in the in in the wheels of um, of, of of Europe and, and of the of the European Union for sure. Thank you very much. I am Evikiori, and this was Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Visit Euractiv to stay on top of the latest news, sign up to our podcast newsletter, and if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever it is that you're listening to your podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and until next time. Euractiv is part of the Trust Project.